Starting the new year off right, in honor of Pieces of a Woman, what's the most harrowing thing you've ever seen on screen? I'm Katie Rich, and I put Son of Saul at the top of my top ten list in 2015 for reasons, I'm sure, but I am sure never revisiting that movie. I'm Matt Patches, and I have to go with the thing that continues to haunt me, which is The Dip from Roger Rabbit, close tied with Christopher Lloyd's animated eyes in Roger Rabbit. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and probably the third act of a Serbian film, which you should probably read about before trying to get into the movie, which you probably shouldn't. I'm David Ehrlich. We must have asked this question at some point over the years, because otherwise, what occasion would we have to talk about a Serbian film as often as we have? Whenever possible. Dave talks about Uh, it as much as possible. You know, I I think uh, 18 months ago, I I probably would have answered United 93, uh, but now I have no choice but to answer Disney's remake of The Lion King. Wow. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 331. It is pandemic 42, and it is the week of Wednesday, January 6, 2021. New year, still pandemic. Uh, that is the day that in 1975, Wheel of Fortune premiered. That's nice. Katie, can I ask you a question? Hmm. When's the plandemic? Not the plandemic, the birdemic going to start. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's been a bunch of hawks in my neighborhood lately. They might be up to yeah. something. Birdemic, it's happening. It's <laughs> happening right before our eyes. They're using the other pandemic for cover. This Olivia wow. Wilde over the dating over a, the holiday, David went full tinfoil hat. <laughs> uh, Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles dating can only mean one thing, and that is, it's that the bird demic is upon us. So the bird they have demic met? is here. Uh, how do, he, how are celebrities her, dating? He's, he's in, in her, her new movie. In the pandemic. Yeah, she. I hope her that movie. he. I, I'm waiting to find out which you know whether Jason Sudeikis or Olivia Wilde keeps the house that's a block away from from me. Oh yeah, um, I didn't know we talked about that on the podcast. I thought that was secret. Well. I don't know. I mean, not sure anyone lives there now. Secrets out. Uh, man, I, I used to see them walking with their kids all the time. I feel really terrible. But um, uh, if it's her, if it's him, I get Ted Lasso in the hood, which is great. And if it's her, maybe she'll bring Harry Styles around. That'll be some excitement. Good hair. Oh, great. Yeah, that'll way. make the neighborhood much better. Yeah. Just random Harry Styles. Hey, it'll be better than, having, wild uh, style. better than having Hawkeye here, as we did last week, two weeks ago. And they're probably not done. Uh, well, then, David... On the not Sudeikis wild topic, do we have any reviews? Uh, we do. I can't make any promises that it does not reference either Jason Sudeikis or Olivia Wilde. That's true. Uh, or Harry Styles, for that matter. But we do have our first review of 2021. Uh, oh. It is from Harley V. Warren. And they say that it's their favorite podcast since 2019, uh, since the before times. I've been listening to Katie, Dave, David, and Patches for over a year now. And in that span, I've listened to upwards of maybe 400 episodes. Wow. Yes, I even went back to their Opkino stuff. That's more than one episode per day, Harley wow. V. Warren. Uh, I don't think I've been this obsessed with the podcast ever, and that's a testament to how smart, witty, and engaging these people are. I have to say, I wasn't expecting a serious film podcast to gush about loving the same things as I do. Mad Men, Neon Genesis Evangelion, Avatar, The Last Airbender, not Avatar, the other thing. Um, We have room for both on this podcast. Personally, I prefer Avatar. And the fire truck. I, yeah, I'm don't bet against James Cameron. It's, it's a motto. Honestly, I, you know, there are no true words that have ever been spoken. Uh, the Good Wife, Gilmore Girls, Dark Souls, all, what, a, what a gamut. Just to name a few pop culture things I adore that regularly pop up in conversations. It's why I'm so in the tank for these guys. 
But this podcast goes beyond just validating your tastes, but demanding you to be more adventurous and broaden your own interests, particularly when it comes to films, but other mediums as well. There are infinite things to love about this podcast, and I urge you to subscribe and discover them. Jason Sudeikis, Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde. Uh, wow, it was an <laughs> unexpected triumvirate at the end there. Um, very topical, Harley Warren. Very appreciated. Thanks for listening. Um, and thank you for being our first review of 2021. This was very, very helpful. Uh, please, if you're out there, leave us a review. It's a new year, new slate, new hope. Dawn of justice. Tell know. your friends. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, guys, we took a week off. It was relaxing. The calendar year turned over. It was relaxing for me. I didn't have to edit a podcast. The rest Come of you guys, kids, we're about to find. Dave. We're about to find out. For, well, I mean, it's great. Apparently, what I've learned this week is I could just give them a can opener and a can of beans, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> at least meme worthy, as long as I haven't, you know, ever tweeted anything horrible, which I'm sure is fine. Back on The real lesson of being dead. Speaking is, of opening the can here, yeah, the real lesson of being dead. Other than to uh, oh God, I can't not tweet about being your children and be an anti-Semite uh, and have that just resurface for the years and get milkshake ducked from a can of beans instantly is uh, to not go on Twitter on Sundays. I find it to be particularly dangerous. On Especially Sundays the Sunday right reason. after the holidays where everyone had sure, already sure, sure. like spent an entire week turning Hilaria Baldwin into a villain for no reason. Like the boredom. Was uh, would we say would we say no reason? I mean, I've, I've expressed my opinions before that I feel like Hilaria Baldwin. Would we Baldwin, say villain? Definitely <laughs> villain. Uh, oh, I, oh. I feel like that was as the someone who is is someone who is uh, <laughs> deeply against Twitter pylons against people who are not Republicans who you know in those cases almost always earn their Twitter pylons. Uh, I, I the Hilaria Baldwin thing was a real tweener for me, but John Roderick was on the the short the short end of things once his old tweets surfaced. Anyway. Dave, as you were saying. Well, using This has been canceled corner with (laughs) Fighting in the War Room. So some stuff happened while we were gone, but also uh, we watched some movies, maybe did some things, maybe just, uh, you know, played with our kids. We're going to do a brief holiday pandemic check-in. I'm going to say brief because I'm going to try to encourage everybody to talk about one thing and let our audience know, they already know because they can see the title of the podcast, that we will be reviewing One Roman 1984 and Soul later on this podcast, so those two cannot be your things. We're going to start with Matt Patches. Oh. Because he giggled like an elf. Well, I was like, we should at least be able to talk about the best toy our family got for the holidays, right? Yeah, if you want, yeah. Uh, my daughter got a like five-foot-tall Hot Wheels racer. She is Wait. about to be three years old. Wait, what does that mean? What does Hot Wheels Racer mean? It is a tower where you put oh, many yeah. Hot yeah. Wheels cars, and and it's a big track. So and you like lift them up an elevator, and they automatically race two at a time. It is awesome. She saw it in a catalog like two months ago. Has been talking about it nonstop. She's finally cognizant enough to be like, I want something. I understand what the holidays are for a big fat man in a red costume is not allowed to come down our fireplace. That was one rule only allowed to come through the front door and mm. he will bring me the toy. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing she wanted also this giant racetrack bigger than she is. And it has a dinosaur. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm not sure what the mythology of this hot wheels contraption is, but you 
you like wind up it's, the cars, they go to the top of the they tower, never and then a the dinosaur chases movie. them down. They never yes, made it, the Hot Wheels movie to explain this. They were supposed to, and then it never got off the ground. But it's got me thinking. I'm like, Fast and the Furious and Jurassic World, both in the Universal under the universe umbrella there's i don't think there's any evidence that they don't take place in the same universe in the same mm. timeline why does everyone want vin diesel to go to the moon when he could be outrunning hot wheels like t-rexes that's true so. send them to send them to the jurassic world yeah, send them to the jurassic world track anyway i did not watch any of those bad movies uh over my break the only thing that i didn't watch that wasn't for like new movie watching was um cradle to the grave of course the 2003 Andres Bartkwayak movie uh, produced by Joel Silver in that post Fast and the Furious era where I guess they were just ripping, they were getting like different hip hop stars to uh, with pair with Jet Li and they made uh, Romeo Must Die. I guess Jet Li didn't appear in um, Exit Wounds, unfortunately. I believe that was Ja Rule. Um, but this one has Jet Li, it has DMX, has Anthony Anderson, has Tom Arnold. And it has Gabrielle Union doing it's like It's truly Ocean's like an, an Avengers of people I want to see <laughs> in a 2002 and, movie. I know. And like, Tom it's Arnold so... being the big straw. Actually, I mean, well, Tom Arnold is playing exact same party play to True Lies. Um, he's just the guy you go to for like illegal shit. And he drives a tank into his first scene. Um, sure. Chekhov's tank, by the way. Mm-hmm. I won't spoil what happens, but they definitely blow up another object with a practical effect that is da bomb if you will. Um, Yeah, this this movie has strong 2003 energy. DMX, pretty charming. Jet Li does not fight anyone. It's really baffling. Really has no good fight scene. Um, He was trying to become a serious dramatic actor. Yeah, he's he just stands there most of the time. He does get a. Of course, they wind up in an illegal fight club underground cage match. And uh, he fights Randy Couture and a number of other uh, I don't know, brutes. And unfortunately, because it's a two, three, 2003 movie, um, there is a, a, a little person actor who gets picked up and they basically do the Austin Powers Spy Shag Me gag with Mini-Me, but for real, like Jet Li uses him as a weapon. It, that's unfortunate. Not not the best part of the movie. And neither is the fact that every scene with Gabrielle Union is like the most male gazy movie scenes and and photography i've ever seen my entire life um i mean she is a very good looking person and she has a lot of movie star energy in this movie they do not need to put her in slow motion for every scene that she appears in (laughs) but uh other than that i actually thought this was like great trash uh i can imagine critics of 2003 this movie has a very low rotten tomato score as you as you might guess and um if you saw this movie after seeing like two or three other movies in a given week you would also think it's just trash like why do they keep doing this shit when it's something you just watch on a whim because it's on HBO Max, it's no longer on HBO Max. You have to rent this movie now if you want to see it, sadly. Um, but it, it is cable trash, and, and it's done to a T. It's like well-executed action. There's an ATV fight that's uh, – DMX rides an ATV. Rides an ATV, I should put that in quotes, because they just cut to him in close-up where he's like jiggling the handle of an ATV and then cut to wide shots where someone is – actually launching over buildings or on the roofs and crashing through window panes and stuff. Um, but like that, that stuff is, it's just like excess. It's pure 2003 excess. It opens with an Eminem song. There's tons of other hip hop tracks. Like everyone's trying to look cool. This is a good movie. This is a good track. <laughs> wow. I didn't, expect, I didn't expect it's a good wow. movie to be where this I landed. Think this is good trash. I, I, Chai McBride is in it. He plays like 
the kingpin essentially who's in jail and he's like eating lobster getting lobster cooked for him in jail and just sh- chewing up scenery and lobster that's what you um, would do if you were in jail i don't know this i just just i guess i'm, I'm my my standards are just falling apart in the in the pandemic times i'm mm. i'm here for the trash i'm here for well executed believing in what you're doing trash oh interesting uh i well i'm gonna i revisited something with my uh storm of spoilers slack we all watched uh joe versus the volcano together the weekend after uh christmas and i was also have been revisiting like older movies and been you know discovering how through the 2020 lens they are are not problematic joe versus the volcano i was bracing for a lot more with the uh, made-up island people mm. uh, than I think was actually there. Did you which, watch this movie I, because of John Patrick Shanley? Because he has a new movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I was mm. waiting for the segue into Wild Mountain Time patches. Well, well I mean, we can talk about Wild Mountain Time, but it's hard to talk about that. A, because I haven't seen it, and B, because I only know the twist B? of Wild Mountain B. Time. I mean, it's, it's also hard to talk about because it's B. truly one of the most baffling things that humanity has ever created. <laughs> Joe vs. Volcano is a pretty weird movie, too, so... It is, it is pretty weird. It, it sets its own rules and, you know, flies by them and decides what, when it's going to be serious and when it's going to be sort of like a slapstick comedy. But Meg Ryan fucking brings it. And the, the thing about the ending natives is I had forgotten there's this whole backstory where they're Jewish Celtic Polynesian. Which is why they're like a mix of like Nathan Lane plays one. So they're extremely uh, they're extremely made up in a way that makes it less problematic. Oh, I think so. They definitely have like um, face paint and uh, flowery flowery um, uh, garb, uh, like Polynesian people. But they get, at some point they start playing the Hava Nagila, <laughs> and there's like some. You know, pure gingerness uh, in there. It it seems like they tr- at least tried to make it more of a mix, and so it didn't ring as like oddly offensive to me. But still, really good. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, really bring that that thing home. It's a great start to their their tr- trilogy. Their let's say trilogy of rom coms. We do that. Sleepless. You've got mail. Yeah, Sounds good. I think it has to be three. Yeah. All right, Katie, I didn't take take up but a few minutes. Wow. What are you got? All right, well, I was really tempted when Patches went off on his toy tangent to start talking about Lego Movie 2, which I just can't remember if I've talked about it on this podcast or not because <laughs> I have been watching it on a loop for months now. Um, but it's a great movie, and it got weirdly, unfairly Oh, ignored. it's so bad. No, it's so Man, good. I, I so love good. Lego Movie, and no, Lisa and go, I go, went to go, go see Lego Movie 2, I think the weekend it opened because we were so excited, and... You're just bored stiff. No, you need to. You gotta. You gotta watch it maybe a hundred times. What's the redeeming the, factor, Katie? Uh, it's a musical in which Tiffany Haddish sings an entire song about how she's not an evil villain, and in in, in it, it makes it her seem like a completely evil villain, and then it turns out she really isn't an evil villain. She's just really oh. bad at communicating. Uh, it's a great. Tiffany movie. Haddish is a good scene. I think that was right after uh, her historic New York Film Critics Circle win. Definitely. For, um, what was the movie called? <laughs> Uh, for a girl's trip um and uh, was flying high and really brings the heat in that it's uh the rest of the movie that i remember feeling wanting it's no lego batman but then again what is no lego I mean, movie, terrible movie lego movie well, 2 has uh, multiple great songs it has a the sequel i guess this is what i'm going to talk like, about 
Does he just want to fucking like try to steal an election? I don't like in the top of twenty. Lego Batman. I don't like Lego Batman. You're you're a disgusting human. I, being. I don't like Lego seen... Movie the first one either. I don't like any. That's of fine. But Lego, Lego Batman two? is the masterpiece. I haven't seen Lego Movie two. I've been burned too many times. Uh, it's amazing. By Legos. It is the the number one favorite in our household at all times. There's also a song that is kind of their answer to "Everything Is Awesome," which is called "Catchy Song," and the the chorus goes, "This song's gonna get stuck inside your head." And it's let's see, I'm gonna looking up who sings it while we're doing this because the movie doesn't. two is eternally like, in my top Spotify. Oh no, it weirdly does. doesn't. Uh, <laughs> is one of the people who sings on it, uh, and then the credit song is performed by Beck, Robin, and the Lonely Island. If that does not intrigue you, I don't know what will. <laughs> And then it has good messages about learning to grow up, but open up your heart and play with your younger sister, which is a message we important. need in our household. Where it's, the fuck's the Duplo movie? Does it teach you the, how the, to The Duplos bees? are part of Lego Movie too. This is important. Like the oh. Duplos like come from a planet to destroy them, and they're, they're trying to fight back against the Duplos the whole time. But then it turns Isn't out that's just Duplo a, a shady DJ. Oh. What? Is that a Diplo <laughs> joke? Like, I think that's Diplo. Oh Listen, Katie, they're all Diplo <laughs> jokes. Okay, uh, <laughs> try to keep up. Also. Uh, uh, pursuant to our soul conversation, Richard Ayoade is a voice in Lego Movie 2 as well. And there are days when we have toggled between Lego Movie 2 in which he is an ice cream cone and soul in which he is one of the Jerry's. And I just enjoy that he's just showing up all over the place. I guess my segment was Lego Movie 2. Turns out it's a great movie. Don't listen to David. Watch it. It's on – actually, shit. It's not on HBO Max anymore, which is going to make this really difficult. You have to rent it on well, iTunes. Well, well, Sorry. Oh, no. I don't know well, why because well, Lego well. Movie and Batman are – and Lego Batman are both still on HBO Max. I have no clue what's going on there. But. Yeah, because they're phenomenal and HBO Max decided to put their you – know, spend their money wisely. <laughs> yes, they only have good movies. HBO like Max. Justice League. <laughs> a like sensible streaming service that's never made yeah. a mistake. <laughs> Wait, what? Did you get a good? Did your kids get a good toy? Oh yeah, well we just got a ton of Legos, like so many Legos, including uh, the characters from Lego Movie Two in the part where they're all dressed up in party clothes because they're listening to the song that gets stuck in your head. And uh, Unikitty, the Alice and Brie like unicorn thing, that's like the most beloved Lego character we have. Is the only way to buy like non IP Legos at this point to buy Lego Movie IP related? No, no, definitely have, like, not. Miscellaneous characters. Nah, they've got do they like still pirate, do ships? pirate ship. Oh yeah, Charlie built a, a snow cat. He built a street sweeper. Uh, snow cat. What the hell? So like the little, like a snowblower machine thing that like goes over oh. the, like uh, mountains. Uh, he's built a monster truck. He had, he built a gigantic monster truck food truck with like a burger on top of it. Uh, he's four and he's really going hard on Legos. So yes, it's incredible. You can do plenty of non-IP Lego stuff. Although we do have an Avengers Lego set, and he built a Thanos, which was really weird. I felt like Dave should have been there. He would have been proud. He has an no- Ant Man Lego can go up Thanos Legos, but he has no idea yeah. who Thanos is. But he has built the Infinity Gauntlet. He doesn't yeah. know who Thanos is. Yeah, he's ever seen an Avengers. Don't he's- you want him to be prepared? How is a four-year-old going to get it? There's no way to introduce a four-year-old to. A I've-, I've asked Dave this before because there's a very short Marvel superhero series on Disney Plus that, like, every episode's like four minutes long, and that's very squarely aimed at preschoolers. But everything else Marvel is just way too big, so we just have time. We can't introduce him to Spider-Man yet. <laughs> okay, he'll get there. <laughs> it's David's turn. Uh, David, yes. Well. Where to begin? I um, I watched something I watched right before the holiday that apparently I wasn't the only one, even though I, I watched as a screener and felt like I was reviewing it into the void. Um, but it was apparently, according to Netflix's uh, impeccable uh, 
you know, press releases about how many their viewership numbers, um, which are incredibly accurate and never the least bit misleading. 44 million other households across the world join me in watching this film, which is Robert Rodriguez's We Can Be Heroes, a semi-sequel to everyone's favorite, Shark Boy and Lava Girl, which itself was kind of a spinoff of, not literally, but tonally, to Spy Kids. Um, and We Could Be Heroes is kind of delightful for very, very young children. It's basically like, it's also, it came out on Christmas Day. It stars Pedro Pascal. It is a superhero movie. It is better in almost every way. It's than probably Wonder what Woman Wonder Woman 1984 wants to be. Obviously. It is. I, the way that I put it in order to, you know, Gin up some attention for my review as it was the better of the two Pedro Pascal superhero movies that happened to be coming out on that particular day. Um, and it's, you know, it's definitely geared towards very little children. It does feel like Kitty Avengers, like Kids Bop Avengers in a way, but, um, and it, 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 something that a lot of Robert Rodriguez movies feel like that it was made in his backyard as a sort of DIY project with his kids, uh, who are now getting older, but, um, it, it has that energy about it. And it's, uh, if you're in the right crowd, it's a lot of fun and clever, and because the premise allows for the target audience allows for them to get a little wacky with the kind of superheroes they have, and like take sky high to the nth degree in terms of you know what the the kids and their abilities can do. Uh, they really have some fun with it and are more creative in a lot of respects than some of the the more adult oriented superhero franchises really have, that are based on pre existing characters have license to be. Uh, it's pretty fun, and it is also you know ends in in a way that with an explicitness that you would expect for a movie aimed at an audience that young, a very direct anti-Trump um, and, and Trump-ishness message, uh, which I guess was only expected in just how far out of the way they go to throw Trump under the bus. Christopher McDonald plays a very Trumpian president who turns out, spoiler alert, to be a uh, purple gooey space alien who's come to Earth to take over the planet, um, but also has an ulterior motive, which... It's a twist like upon a twist. Life. Anyway, mm-hmm. like in real life, I mean, it is. I think there are a lot of documentary verite elements uh, about We Can Be Heroes. <laughs> um, it, anyway, that was cute. Is this um, a VOD thing? I, this seems it's like on Netflix. We would watch. Is, oh, it's a Netflix nice. movie. Great. Um, and 44 million households watched it on Netflix. Uh, I uh, We did our Lord of the Rings we watched. And I, I challenged the idea that suddenly this is something – like Dave was coming up with some explanation for why it seemed like – people were suddenly getting to Lord of the Rings. Dave, can you can you enlighten us with what that explanation was? Oh, I think a lot more people turned to it this holiday season because uh, people that do, like, holiday Harry Potter stuff uh, are maybe okay. not supporting it. That's a, that's a wild, a wild take. I think um, the, maybe because there weren't as many blockbusters. I, I, I think... Just, like, or or people were watch. not home with their families and therefore had a lot more free time. I, time yeah, I, I yeah. also think that Lord of the Rings have long become sort of perennial uh, holiday viewing, although they are, I would argue, to my dying day, not that there's ever a bad time to watch Lord of the Rings, New Year's movies and not Christmas movies. The world has changed. The first words, it's right there. Come on. Wow. Um, but uh, um, I just I just think that people are being more vocal about it, more getting into it, uh, just because we had nothing else to go. But God, those movies are so good. And I want to throw my phone into Mount Doom. I swear every else? single day I logged on to Twitter, someone else has been like, well, here we go. Rewatch it on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I think it has to do with free time. It really I, 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 that's it's also a bit measures. of a confirmation bias, but it also begets like people watching Lord of the Rings and tweeting about yes. it. begets people watching Lord of the Rings. Yes. Yeah, it's all people who know um, each other who are all watching Lord of the Rings. Sure. But the last thing I want to shout out is uh, Joan Micklin-Silver is a filmmaker who died uh, at the age of 85, I believe, just a couple of days ago, right after the uh, new year. 
and her films are I had seen um, Chilly Scenes of Winter, but the rest of her films are that I've been really meaning to watch for a long time. Um, and uh, Chris Mason Wells had led a effort to when he was at the Quad to screen them there as a rep series that was very well attended and spoken highly of and i made it to exactly zero of those screenings but i was able to catch up with between the lines on the criterion channel the other day uh which is a movie that is delightful and also i think would resonate with a lot of the people not only on this zoom call but also listening it is about uh people who journalists who work at a it's a 1977 film it's about journalists who work at an alt weekly paper in boston uh, people like John Hurd and Jeff Goldblum and uh, Bruno Kirby and everyone's favorite wow. Seventh Heaven pederast Stephen Collins, who appropriately plays a big old creep. Um, although John Hurd later in life became a big 9-11 truther, which is a different category of Wait, creep. really? But yes. Wow. Um, uh, but there was uh, there are scenes of them together squabbling on a park bench. and It's just a lot of bad energy. But John Hurd was quite charming back in the day. Um, and he was a recurring muse of sorts for Joan Micklin Silver. But I, I really, really like this movie, which is on the Criterion channel right now. It has a really fun sort of roguish energy about it. It feels very media res. It's sort of very from the beginning about the instability of um, sort of preserving a moment of time, particularly in the journalist journalistic arena. Um, the idea is that these waters are always going to be changing and none of these jobs are particularly secure. The ecosystem that we all work in is always in flux. Um, and people are coming and going um, and just trying to, I don't know, they're, they're meeting up in the middle for a moment before going in different directions. And it captures all of that uh, without really settling down, sinking its teeth into any particular notes. But you get a really clear sense of who all these people are. It does so in a hurry. It's like 101 really quick minutes. Uh, it inspired a TV series that I have never seen a moment of, short-lived, supposedly, a sitcom. Um, it is Robin really, really can, delightful. I guess you can't even access it. TV shows like that are so hard to find. I mean, yeah, and the internet, the internet is a, is a wild thing. But um, the, yeah, it's just, it's a really smart, a smartly made film. And there's just character oozing out of all the sort of incidental moments. Um, and uh, young Jeff Goldblum is, is really doing his thing. Uh, it's a good time. Highly recommended and probably a great gateway to Joe Micklin Silver's other films. Uh, that I am now even more eager to seek out. I've been so So the first of our two reviews, we're, we're going back. We missed all the Christmas releases. And thank God we missed the Christmas to New Year's discourse in our orbit. I don't know if normal people had to deal with this, but I just saw so many sparks flying, so many takes back and forth. And I'm just like, I'm I'm on holiday. I don't have to weigh into this. I have a podcast. This is what we do. Were you British uh, all of a sudden? I'm on, on holiday. holiday. I'm on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> That's how far away from the discourse I was. I was an entirely another Western culture. Um, the first movie we're going to talk about is Wonder Woman 1984. Although, as someone noted, it's only called WW84 in the movie. So maybe that's what I believe called. that is Eric Snyder. Eric Snyder. Why, uh, oh, yes. It, it is the, it is the uh, I Heard You Paint Houses of 2020. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever we'll call it wonder woman 1984 it is the sequel 
to uh, Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins. She is back directing this one, having written the screenplay with Jeff Johns of the DC Comics world and David Callum, who has written some pretty bad movies, actually. He wrote Doom, that rock movie. He wrote The Expendables. Mm-hmm. He's, for some reason, writing I don't the know if that, that movie. motherfucker. I don't know if that actually is warranted here, but go on. He actually wrote, I mean, I don't know. He, this is a high-profile job for some people who sure. are a guy who's written some bad movies. That's what, that's what that actually meant. But you know what? He's probably great in a room, and maybe those movies got some unfortunate rewrites. Anyway, he was in charge of writing this uh, sequel with the two of them. Uh, and it's a big, hulking movie. It's two and a half hours long. Gal Gadot is back as Diana Prince. And we have a whole bunch of new characters but instead of going like the Batman Forever route where it's just, hey, let's have throw in some new villains, we'll generate some new toys, there'll be some set pieces, and we'll we'll get out and we'll have a good popcorn movie time. I don't know. This this demands lots of time dedicated to Kristen Wiggs, Barbara Minerva, a, a gemologist who's dealing with being shy and not believing in herself. And there's also Pedro Pascal as Maxwell Lord, a, a very Trumpian fake news businessman who is trying to con everyone into joining his oil operation. Um, and what, what connects them all is a monkey's paw, <laughs> a magical wish machine uh, that they discover in a collection of artifacts that's stolen at a mall. <laughs> um, it is in a mall. And it's, it's true. super duper silly in a way that I think, I, I, speaking of the discourse, Katie, I saw a lot of people being like, wow, this movie's about a monkey's paw wish. Uh, and they bring back Chris Pine, Steve Trevor by inhabiting the body of a random dude. And that, that's weird. All of this is just like eighties movie nonsense. I totally understand why it's this cartoonish and silly. Patty Jenkins is, is aping movies and tropes from the 1980s. But here's the weird thing. This movie barely takes place in 1984. This movie has a I, cool please, excuse me. I believe you're forgetting. I believe you're forgetting that someone, <laughs> an extra, is briefly seen wearing leggings in one shot. Yeah, there's, there's oh, a Kristen sequence. Kristen Wiig wears the movie. a lot of leggings. Let's be clear. No, I'm not going to hear this about the leggings in this movie. Where is Diana's perm? Okay, that is all Ooh, I'm saying. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, the movie opens with like people. Uh, roller skating and 80s cars and lots of color and then they go to the mall and like you think that this might be a big 80s romp my biggest question about this movie is like why isn't it a big 80s romp what is this movie there's so many parts to it I don't even know where to begin to talk about Wonder Woman 1984 one of the most confusing movies I've seen in a long time it is for 12 year old girls plain and simple like the movie opens with a young Diana back on uh Themyscira what how do you pronounce that I can't pronounce I think that's close enough um and you get to see this this sequence that's purely for the young women in the audience like here's why can't it be for young other people it can no no but that's the awesome part like it opens and you're like this movie's for 12 year old girls 12-year-old girls don't get movies like this. This is really cool. Gal Gadot is actually amazing when she's not delivering dialogue um, wow. as, as Wonder Woman. She, like, looks the part. She's ha- She glows with this heroine aura, and she can do all these set pieces. It's cool for, like, 25 minutes. And then this movie is two and a half hours long, and it has this, like, Phantom Menace-esque plot about Max Lord and his oil business and all of the Chris Pine stuff and the romance is not for 12-year-old girls. I don't get the... This movie's a mess. It's very, very strange. I wish it was just a 90-minute 
superhero movie for 12-year-old girls. But what is this movie? What is it even about? Like, why is it two and a half hours long? Can I say I'm not it? usually the one complaining about long movies, but it really is about nothing. I, I barely remembered what happened in this movie three hours after watching it. Can I say the things I liked about this before we go on? Yes, because I please. think, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to call myself like a fan of this because I got to the two hour mark and I was like, please kill me. I'm so done watching this movie. But I think if this movie <laughs> were the tone of that opening set piece, the tone of Chris Pine and uh, Gal Gadot, like when she invents the invisible jet and it's just like big Fourth of July fireworks and then kind of everything Pedro Pascal is doing, it could work. There is good stuff in there that is a, has a, a great tone. Message. Sure, it's got a great message. Like it's Tell like the, the like the monkey's paw thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, her, she has like a whole monologue at the end. It's like, oh, is this written to the uh, editorial board of the uh, Washington Examiner? Um, but <laughs> I don't know. There's a, there's stuff in here yes. that's not what you've seen in other superhero movies. It doesn't feel like a Marvel knockoff. It doesn't feel like kind of anything else. Like especially that opening sequence in the mall where she's like winking at kids and like flinging them into safety in the arms of a teddy bear. Like it's fun, and it's got that energy she had in the first one where she's like. This, like, beautiful Amazonian goddess, but also kind of a goofball who, like, gets really excited about, like, cute babies. And so much of that is missing in this movie. Like, the what her personality becomes so absent. Um, but I was, like, I was just with it for all of its weirdness for kind of seeing what happened next at every turn. And then every time Pedro Pascal is on screen, you're like, oh, he's doing something. Like, he's got spark and inventiveness to what he is bringing to this movie. And then it, it gets kind of washed away again. Um Maybe that was more negative than I intended it, but I like things in it, even though it was two and a half hours long. And that's I was how I very feel too. I, I keep thinking of like I actually think Kristen Wiig is really good in the movie. I like She's her too. Her, her character, I mean, her, is, kind her, of her is, character is infuriating. I mean, this is the problem: is that this is a movie that every I, I so desperately wanted to turn off the logical side of my brain. I so so desperately wanted to embrace the eighties. Do you, you know, wish Donnerish turn off your brain? <laughs> no. I, I could only end badly, Pedro. But I or what was this character's name? Max. Um, Max Lord. Max Max Lord, yes. Um but uh it, the movie is just too poorly thought out and dumb to allow you to do that. At every opportunity it just makes it does not even make the bare minimum amount of sense that it needs for you to buy into the fantasy of it all. And I especially regretted that because I was fully on board for the more uh, emotionally driven nature of the the overall story. Um, I I liked in theory the idea of the wishing stone and this character who's whose greed um, and his self-interest uh, and his desire to, for validation sort of corrupts everything and everyone around him. Um, I wish that it made even the smallest lick of sense, but uh, it does not. He, uh, and he, Pedro- he wishes to become a rock in this movie. I feel like that's been really <laughs> under-discussed. He, he becomes a rock. He does want to be the rock. Become a rock. <laughs> uh, yeah, he wanted to become, he just didn't have the right right to say, I want to be yeah. the rock. He became oh, no. a rock. And that was the problem. Um, but it's just kind of maddening. From the mo- I mean, really, the, the most successful sequence in the movie is that opening sequence. I don't yeah. entirely agree that it's just for 12-year-old girls. I mean, I think there is sort of an emotional underpinning that it provides to the rest of the movie, and it kind of needs to be there. Um, but And it also just sort of makes sense in a vacuum. Uh, and then we leave that boring island, thank God, and we get to watch like the D.C. No, it's boring. And then we get to Washington, D.C., where uh, it is apparently – there's like, – yeah, like the, the costumes think it's 1984. Yeah. There's um, no 80s yet, songs in this movie, right? There's no 80s song, even though the trailer had an awesome oh, cover of Blue Monday. That cover. Um, it, uh, there's not a single scene where you see me being born, which is a big oversight. 
Oh, same. Uh, same, man. I was born like three... <laughs> Dave, hang on, David. It, it takes place on 4th of July. You were not born yet. I was, though. Let's Wait, be clear. Katie, does it take place in 4th of July or does a character errantly mention, oh, isn't it the 4th of July? I saw a fuck ton of fireworks. I don't, I don't know what... Oh, my God. But was it's it like, for that my birthday, the day of the, I was I think, born? I don't think fireworks. we see you being born because they uh, wished you away and then you <laughs> had to renounce it. And then you were born off screen later. So It's so emblematic of how half-assed a lot of this movie feels and that the fact that it's 4th of July, which it needs to be in order to justify the fireworks they fly over and it's supposed to look cool even though it all looks like fake horse shit is uh it's just because someone's like oh hey it's fourth of july like there's there's no sense of time or place which is very bizarre for a movie called wonder woman 1984 that makes it like went to you know shooting in dc isn't easy like you got to shoot in dc for a purpose and like none of the characters seem to have anything to do with the government at all what what think they shot i mean I guess the only character in this movie is Pedro Pascal, and to a slightly, to a, to a lesser extent, and I will give her the the benefit of saying that it is a character. Uh, whatever Kristen Wiig is doing, even though that character drives me to the fucking wall because it makes absolutely no sense that after getting everything this character has always wanted, she's like, he's like, don't you want more? And she's like, yes, I want to become a giant fucking ugly abomination cat. And he's like, granted. And the then they have thing. a fight. They have a fight that reminds me of nothing but the last 20 minutes of The Incredible Hulk. And I thought that we had made some sort of progress since then, but apparently not. What a travesty. I thought it couldn't get worse than the last act of Wonder Woman, which is a movie I think we were all way too kind to back in 2017. Uh, I mean, and a lot of that movie is decent. And then the third act, again, has a big sure, 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 sure. blob fighting but, uh, Wonder Woman. But especially, it's especially decent in, um, and maybe only in comparison to this one, where... The one thing that I think sort of unambiguously worked with the first one was the chemistry between Diana Prince and Steve, not Rogers. He has some other last name. But I don't know what it is. It's not Rogers. Uh, uh, whatever. But um, the uh, but the he has no character, and we can. I'm not really interested in the whole. Um, yes, they completely fumbled at the vice of him being in the body of some other guy. I think people are kind of grasping at straws and looking at like sort of sexual impropriety regarding that. It's just that. pointless, I mean, the movie makes, right? It like, is pointless, they, they don't but, gain anything from having him not just like be there. Magically. But they don't gain anything by having him be there in the first place because Diana Prince is a total black hole of a character. Am I misremembering or was Gal Gadot good in the first movie? I remember her being pretty good. She had uh, this like fish out of water thing going for her. That's what I was saying before. Like she was so like out of step with the world and she was like paired up with uh, who's the British comedian woman who she was like was like her handler. Oh yeah. What's her name? Who's on um, Sabrina? now oh, yeah God. she was well, great like they had a great rapport but yeah david you're right that she, i mean she was at least funny and charming in the first one and but she has no character them, here no right? she has like, no character what is her deal in this movie she's been waiting for steve trevor for decades like that's there's not a no, good character trait there's no emotion <laughs> when he comes back she doesn't register the slightest amount of of joy. There's like a gasp of surprise and then it's just like well yeah i guess we're in the sequel well, to be I fair he doesn't look like chris pond um, but then he whatever. does. Like she. I mean, to her, he no, does. It's he only doesn't. In, no. Yeah, but like whatever. that's also pointless if they're going to try to have that element. Be <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not. I'm defending the the internal logic of the movie, not the emotional factor. Of the movie, which um, should work for you. It, but like <laughs> they, not. the material they have uh, is just completely flat. Um, the action is basically terrible. I mean, I think it was really cut for that one cool. It's not a we visual movie. Um, it's not no, a and, and I it appreciate have that it doesn't have good shots. And I don't. I like. like that in and of itself is not a knock against the movie because I am all here for these superhero movies that sort of uh, look inward and uh, you see what happens in the last 30 minutes oh, of this movie when they – Right. Well, you see what happens when they throw all the CG at the wall and it's just like how any studio or filmmaker allowed 
that sequence into the world in 2020 is just baffling to me. The cat Especially, thing? it's just, it's just horrid. But, uh, I, I, like, I want, like, a written apology from someone. <laughs> but, wow. Clear the path here. Dave needs to jump in. Anyway, yeah, Dave does uh, in. very bad movie, but uh, I really, I, re- I appreciate the movie that it wanted to be. I'm just really sort of baffled at how far I missed the mark. Yeah, it's a movie full of decisions that I can't understand why they made it. The best way I could figure it by looking back <clears throat> is like they were, they thought this was like their way out of the like Snyderverse, right? This is the Aquaman, uh, post Aquaman Wonder Woman movie where it's like maybe they could be big and dumb and stand on their own. Uh, but they're, then it seems like they built uh, a movie around like, well, what are our biggest, dumbest Wonder Woman ideas? And like, let's storyboard those out and like, let's pick some weird villains and like make some weird choices and then connected it all without like a thought, like that's not how you build a successful narrative. Stuff like going to the Middle East and having a guy erect a magical wall along racial barriers in Egypt, and then having Gal Gadot that didn't work save, for you? <laughs> save children from like a missile. It's all like, why? Like, first of all, that entire sequence says to me like there there was nobody who actually knew anything about Middle Eastern culture watched this movie. Despite from when it the got star filmed. being Israeli, I mean, I, I understand that typically Israelis are on the uh, challenging side of building a wall, but still, she she yeah, knows no, the region. It's, it's, just like the then then what I'm saying is that it seems like a really dumb place to make some sort of like grander statement uh, and like pa- pandering maybe to your star who, as Patches pointed out, like isn't good in this movie to the point where pandering it makes to you your question. Star. How are you, how is that pandering to her? What? How is it pandering it, to her? If she's like, I want to you know save some kids from a missile who are playing soccer on a highway. I would. It would make you don't sense. Know that. It would make sense given everybody we've talked about who's worked on this movie that Gal Gadot brought that up. Because why else would you be there? Why else would you be in that situation? Wait, are you, you talking? Like, you're know. saying the entire Middle East sequence is pandering to Gal Gadot? I'm saying it's one example of every single choice that didn't have to be there. You didn't have to have Steve Body inhabit uh, Steve Trevor Steve inhabit body. the body of a dude <laughs> who wakes up having been unconscious for a period of time and had someone had sex with him. But you you can't, you do if you want to do a funny 80s body swap riff. The problem is it's not funny and it's not obvious enough that it's a body swap riff. It All is I'm saying like, is like every single choice, like, I, sure, Patches, if you want to like break it this down. Movie and hating on it at the same time. <laughs> it's just so weird to me. It seems like a movie that was like shot in these weird pieces and then assembled over a long period of time to it's where it's hmm. like... I guess it's called a film. So as no, that's not what I'm talking about. How do you think they make movies? So her, her and Steve, they suddenly need a passport for the dude's bodies he's in. They have a check for a passport, and the dude lives in Washington D.C. But apparently, doesn't have a passport. So they steal a plane. Diana's losing her powers because the more Steve comes back, the more her powers gets lost. But that doesn't mean she can't invent the ability to make the plane invisible while they're in the invisible plane they have a very touching moment that shot really well where steve all of a sudden starts talking about flying like okay buddy 
but it's so he can set it up so she can fly later on after he leaves, which is great, except that's like not one of her powers. And then later on, that is one of her some, powers. Like no, she's like Thor flies. She doesn't Superman fly, which they literally have her do. It's true. Well, she mean, she pulls you mean in the in the mythology of the movies or the, in the mythology of the comics. Anyway, and then, so, so, so then there's a really cool sequence where she's using her lasso of truth to, you know, you gain momentum on lightning, which is great and was one of the first images I saw from the movie. So I imagine it was developed very early on. And then she gets in a fight where she refuses to fly and instead does this acrobatic cat shit with the cat woman to maybe tie it into the beginning, which is like tacked on and very fun to watch. But it does sort of draw this line between cheating and truth and lies, which are two different concepts in a movie. The concepts in a movie that is this Wait, broad. Did, are you referring to the final fight that we've discussed as one of the great abominations ever foisted upon my eyes as fun to watch? No, no, no. The opening sequence, which sets up the super acrobatic uh, Amazons, oh, is okay. then echoed in the later shittier sequence. But it seems like the opening sequence might have been developed to do that in some cool horse stunts. Because to me, like, Diana cheats in the race, and then Robin Wright comes over and says, like, don't lie, always tell the truth. And I'm like, you mean don't cheat? Like, cheating and lying, the, yeah. the, the connection between cheating and lying is implied, much like in the way that they call the wishing stone a monkey's paw in this movie, which is only a current reference to Steve Trevor because the monkey's paw story is in 1908. I don't understand how everybody walks around calling their MacGuffin the MacGuffin. We're supposed to be like, ah, oh, yes, good filmmaking. It's just, it's bad all the way through and it's bad choices. <laughs> There's nothing I like. I'm sorry. Well, what did you think of Pedro Pascal? Uh, he's doing fine, but it almost seems like the like super flirt that exists in the first quarter of the movie has to disappear behind a bloodshot eye just to escalate the plot. It's like at some point he even dismisses his kid and they keep developing the kid as a character because they need to pull him back, but they have no reason to keep him in one place. He's got to jo- hop becomes, around the globe. After he becomes the Dreamstone, it gets so repetitive. <laughs> it's just like, mm. well, yeah. just I don't scream know. at people about getting wishes. He's just holding just like, people's hands and looking at them over and over I feel like you see it eight times yeah, no, in the you movie. Do. It's so boring. You do. There's Can no I progression. Just... There's no scene of him actually understanding the wish stone. That's all we like. travel back to a lab that he has that Diana finds that we see as the you know serial killer wall. It feels like, like even like the rest of it, Pedro Pascal's scene could, could have been shot out of order because it's not that he's not doing good work in some scenes. It's just the whole thing's equally inconsistent it's also incredibly bizarre that they give no closure whatsoever to either his character or kristen weeks the last time we see both of them are in their respective well in kristen weeks final fight and pedro pascal hugging his kid on the, the lawn isn't that and his then, closure he goes and closure. He learns i mean dad. it's a certain emotional closure but it's also i, I would expect at that point after watching two and a half hours of this movie i want to see like what becomes of that character like what kind of yeah, comeuppance he, he should probably there straight is. up go to jail for a lot of things. Well, be, be careful asking that question because before you know it, baby Bruce Wayne stabbed him in the neck and, you know, it's a whole other movie Whoa, with Robert what? Pattinson in it. Oh, God. No, I'm just saying it's like, the, I hope this is the petering out of the DC universe. I'm not against them sh- taking their shot with a Wonder Woman 3. These things are inevitable. I like DC's sort of like multiverse era because I think a lot of what 
you know, chain this movie up was somebody telling them what it should have been. Wait, what does it have to do with DC Universe, though? Because I didn't see a ton of connections to, I mean, not that I know a lot. Well, she has to be breaking cameras and being secret because we already know that, you know, nobody knows who Wonder Woman is by the time Batman and Superman show up. They have to be there. I saw intelligent people talking about how this movie confuses the mythology of Batman v Superman and Justice League as if that was something we need to care about at all. Um, well, and that's part of the, for society. That's part of the reason it's set in 1984 is because at that when this movie was greenlit and titled Wonder Woman 1984, DC wasn't interested in doing post Justice League Wonder Woman movies. They just weren't. Why did they so, jump ahead so far? Don't why like why isn't this movie set Stranger Things in the 60s or like, something things. that has any thematic resonance to Diana's we're, story we're, or politics? We're, we're in the gap. The uh, the what are the Happy Days that 70s show gap? Yeah, if you're, we, if you're like in 30 years from the period, that's when you you wanted I, to see media. About I think years, that the greed the greed of the 80s or you know, the greed is good era it seeded a lot of the social ills that we are experiencing yeah. today. And I think that there is sort of a, a baked-in resonance to setting a movie there and exploring that angle of things that they give it such a cursory view and they don't really dig into anything about anything uh, only makes the flaws of the film more glaring. But I, I can understand the initial decision to do that. Do you think this movie would have played better in December 2019 when it was supposed to come out, when we would have been in the like thick of Trump land as opposed to after the election when we had hope for society itself? Mm. Yeah. Sure. Or That's even if it, even if it had come out this... Impossible to answer, but... Even if it had come out this summer, I think it would have played differently. Yeah. We would have been And if people really had honest. seen it in theaters, I think the theory that people are harsher on things that are in their living room than that well, they actually went through the effort of seeing yeah, is really true. Yeah, because people are live-tweeting commentary. It, it's yeah. true. I mean, it's it's true. And uh, I think to a certain extent, um, you know, obviously your Spider-Man 2s and Into the Spider-Verses would have still played pretty well under any circumstances and see for the first time. But I think it's true that people were only half-watching this movie and were – or it is very difficult as people will learn who they start to notice these big movies are getting worse and worse and worse when it in fact it reflects a lot of how they're watching them. But uh, I also think that the home video experience, home viewing experience, whatever we want to call it, does expose a lot of the flaws that some of us uh, have never had much trouble spotting in theaters. Wait, what is um, that emphasis that you're putting uh, on? I am referring to you and you're, uh, you're constantly trying to take down a superhero industrial complex um anyway this is a bad movie and i've yet to see listen i i i think uh i think it's it's great that like the big achievement of patty jenkins so far in terms of you know her as a woman in this position is that she has um found uh, shown that a female filmmaker can fail upwards in the same way that a colin trevorrow always has uh, or a million other interchangeable white men like him um, and i do think in all sincerity that is a genuine step forward that needs to happen in order for women to achieve some kind of parody uh behind the camera in hollywood um but i have not seen anything you know aside from monster that makes me think that she's a particularly interesting filmmaker and i left this movie bummed out that she's going to be directing a uh, 
a big Star Wars space movie, uh, even though her video where she announced it, I found moving and like really sincere and um, believe that her heart is in it. And I hope my fingers are crossed and I'm wishing on Pedro stones for the best. But uh, <laughs> I, I would have to be pleasantly surprised for that movie to turn out well. I think maybe I like any story when Pedro Pascal has a father redemption arc. You know, Mandalorian, this, there's probably a third one. I've never seen Narcos. I we, like... we could be heroes, right? Oh, right. He's in that. That's right. Is he, is he a father who needs He's redemption and we he could is. be heroes? He has uh, super kids. Just like Baby Yoda, when you think about it. You talk, anyway, speaking of cute things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Soul is a Pixar movie that went straight to Disney Plus on Christmas Day. Uh, it is the first original Pixar movie in some amount. I guess no, I guess onward. Never mind. It's not as not onward as, actually it's, happened. Not, it's not the first original Pixar out. movie in at least seven months. Not as long ago as I thought it was, but you know what I mean. They've made a good number of sequels lately. Uh, directed by Pete Doctor, who's kind of one of the like OG Pixar people. Uh, Jamie Foxx is this jazz musician uh, named Joe Gardner who uh, dies by falling into a manhole the day he got his big break, but instead of going on to the great beyond the way he's supposed to in the way that a character voiced by June Squibb who has two lines uh, tells him to it's just amazing she's in it for two lines uh, he falls into kind of the great before which is where all these souls headed to earth are trained and taught how to be um, people and how to find their spark which is what led can I only earth. interrupt to say that June Squibb deserves Oscar consideration for Hubie Halloween carry on <laughs> Uh, I love her in Palm Springs. Thank you very much. Um, so he winds up paired up with this very cantankerous soul called 22, voiced by Tina Fey, who has never found her spark to go to Earth. And through some things, they wind up back on Earth uh, where he is in the body of a cat and she is in his body and they have to find their way to help him get his big break. Um, it is a Pixar movie in so many classic senses, including that it has this kind of deep existential theme about it and then a lot of antics and a lot of caper things about it. Um, it also has some of the most inventive animation in any Pixar movie. I think hands down like the way that it depicts the great before and the great beyond and kind of this very stark style it's got all these like soul guide characters who are all named Jerry um, who are voiced by a wide variety of people Alice Braga is one of them Richard Ayoade is one of them as mentioned and there's there's a couple other famous people I can't remember um and it's really gorgeous to look at. The wait when it goes to New York City, it's really, really gorgeous. It's got to be the best animated New York ever. Uh, it's kind of incredible to like feel in you know feel like you're walking inside of. Um, and Can you I, mention the greatest of the Jerry's real quick? Uh, which one's the greatest of the Jerry's? Uh, you, mean, you talk about Terry, Rachel House. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Is she not a Jerry at no, all? She's, is she a Terry? She's, she's, a Terry. She's, she's a Terry. She's the accountant okay. who's trying to kind of basically the villain of the movie who's trying to track down Joe Gardner and send him back to the Great Beyond. She is incredibly funny. Every single line she has in this movie is a gem. Um, as I said, I've seen this movie a lot. I've seen it a lot in chunks, so I've kind of like watched one part before I saw another part. Um, but it's really stuck with me, and I 
love the music in it. it is this really fully real? Not that I know a ton, of, ton about jazz, but it feels like the filmmakers themselves made a lot of effort to know about lot, lot, what they're talking about. Um, I think it's been somewhat under-discussed, but maybe, I don't know, where the people discuss it, but I think it's the first Pixar film about a black character, and they did a ton of cultural research to kind of get away with that, since his, Pixar is historically a super white place. Um, and I keep finding new things every time I watch it, so I'm all in on Soul. Who's going to tell me I'm wrong? Uh, I'm not gonna say I'm. I'm not gonna tell you you're wrong. Uh, I am going to encourage you to finish Wolf Walkers, which as the as of, uh, recording time, you're only twenty thirty minutes. Wow, through. you really called um, me out. I am no. I mean, I, I I do want to resist the idea of pitting those movies against each other. But you are an Oscar commentator. It is what you do for a living. I think you have a, an effect on the landscape and I would hate for you to put the best animated film of the year uh, and the one most deserving uh, of Oscar consideration on the back burner. But, no, it's certainly uh, really I'm, not, I'm definitely not aiming to say Soul is the best animated anything since I have seen very few of them. I mean, I my only problem, my problem with Soul and it's a big problem, is uh, for all that there is to love about this movie and Rachel House, I mean, her, her voice performance is unclassifiable. I mean, it's 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 so unexpected and different and always it feels like it belongs to this other worldly being. Yeah. Um, Although it's also really similar to the role she played in Hunt, Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, just kind what of is more... it with Disney hiring people from New Zealand to just be the funny sidekick and everything? Are we talking about? They did that in Thor Ragnarok and then they did it in The Mandalorian. And as, in, here. as in Taika Waititi, the director of Thor Ragnarok? Yes. That's right. You heard me. <laughs> uh, Rachel um, House was also the grandmother in Moana, so she, I can't remember if that came before or after well, the Well, she's fantastic. She might have beaten Takeaway TT to it. She's very funny. Her character also uh, enjoys some of the more uh, inventive moments of animation in yeah. this movie. There's a moment where, and it's sort of like this cubist blob-like character, and there's a moment where it flattens out against uh, the lines of an advertisement in the New York City subway, and it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, my problem with Soul is just the same problem I had with Inside Out, which is another movie that people love and just bounced off of me, uh, which is that I find that when Pete Doctor makes these movies, and they do kind of feel like spiritual cousins in a way, um, that are about – where the characters are literally concepts – uh, they are never really allowed to become anything more than that, at least for me. I found absolutely no place to emotionally hold on to anything in this movie and ditto that Inside Out where all the characters are literally emotions um, because it all feels so prescriptive in a way that something like Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow films, which I would say, I, I'm not going to say that this was explicitly ripped off of, but it definitely feels the first third of this movie feels like Pixar does Don Hertzfeld. A little um, bit. I mean, they might even admit uh, to that. I mean, it's nothing to admit to or cop to. I mean, they have their own riff on it and that's fine, but it just kind of feels like been there, done that in a way um, with a much, much less money and a lot more wit. Uh, and I, I just, but like those characters, even though they're constantly in, in John Hertzell's film espousing in the driest possible way their situation and what they're hoping to achieve and the Emily character in the World of Tomorrow films, the adult version or clones anyway, uh, seeming to have a very limited emotional register. Uh, it's so deeply felt and there's such pathos there and I just didn't really get any of that from these characters who are constantly explaining the rules to each other um, and the next thing you know there's a Nick's joke and then it's over and I, I really... you saying uh, you didn't like the Nick's joke? The Nick's joke's fine. Um, I think uh, the the writer of the movie is a long-suffering Nick's fan and deserves to have his uh, his say. But um, 
the and that first half, the stuff that I'm kind of denigrating worked for me a lot better than the second half. Once you get the body switching stuff with the cat, uh, you know, I, it just it all really felt kind of um, same old, same old for me, which is not what I expected for a movie that seems to be as far out there for what it is as Soul does. But you know, I, I like the setting. I like I like the character. I love Pixar making a movie about sort of a down and out jazz teacher and in new york uh you know that's a far cry from what they usually do and uh, closer to the kind of animation animated movies that tend to resonate with me but uh yeah i don't know i just i this movie as soon as it was over i never thought about it again until now Mm. dave i feel like you told me earlier that you're firmly anti-body swap in pixar movies i am firmly anti-body swap that's probably my least favorite part of this movie not necessarily i just i think it's cheap unless it's the focus and this is definitely like he could have swapped into anything, you know, to to do particular thing. Anyway, I'm well, not the point is that she is inside a, a human. Like that's what you have to accomplish. It's not right, a- right, right. And so it's like you know, being in the cat, it's there for like uh, enough good cat jokes you could count on your hand, right? Uh, so it just seemed like interesting. Anyway, not important. The more thing I think important thing to me hearing David talk is like it sounds like he's reacting to this the same way I reacted to. I'm thinking of ending things, which is like who who cares if this guy's talking to himself? Like it doesn't it didn't emotionally hook me. So I, I don't want to say that this necessarily was a huge emotionally um moving film but it was incredibly beautiful in a way that like when i was watching it uh the the terry and the jerry's that we're talking about or anyway the aries uh they're all one-dimensional lines that are twisted sometimes in two-dimensional space sometimes in three-dimensional space to do objects they're sort of based off of uh, old World's Fair single line drawing uh, advertisements that used to have been done. So that was really cool watching them interact. Uh, when uh, I was watching this movie with Java, when they get in like the soul world, she's like, oh, Pixar loves their blobs. And I'm like, well, I also love those blobs. They don't have like any <laughs> defining edges. They're just like they faded into nothingness and they've got color on them. Like, I see why they like the blobs. But more <laughs> importantly, which I think Katie pointed out, is like their New York looks great. Their crowds of people finally look like crowds of people, which after like Pixar, one of Pixar's biggest problems is being at the, you know, forefront of 3D uh, cinematic animation. They sort of led to the uh, problems with uh, every other animation studio, which is like you make one base model and then most of your background characters are riffs on that model. And that model is usually, you know, like, white man and white woman and so that's how it happens or if it's just the first toy story all the kids are you know either andy or sid because that's all they have in terms (laughs) of like human models so being able to see the different types of people uh the way people uh sweat uh the way the hair works on their body um the way they could be lit in like clubs or outside and the way that pixar has been able to compound all these technologies uh, to make something look this way. I think part of the reason why the body swapping stuff um, hit me the wrong way is when this movie's in its like soul area, it's simple squash and stretch. The jokes are broader. 
it's like kind of fun and then you go down into the real earth because it's supposed to be about like uh what the process of living is i guess ultimately it was just so textural and fun that having like this uh cartoon cat you know doing gag comedy wasn't like working for me can i just can i speak to this the nature of the animation for a second which is that i agree with the spirit of everything you were saying which is that there are moments in this movie that are so visually inventive and are generally beautiful um but they still feel to me like the exception to the rule and i still feel like um the animation style is a sin against God and should be destroyed. And it was a mistake for humanity to have created this. You're uh, talking about the, the borderless blobs or you're talking yes. about the humans? Uh, uh, the all of it. Blobs. All of it. I think uh, Pixar is, I will always be biased against Pixar um, until even, even the movies of theirs that I borderline love like Ratatouille, um, because I think that the, their entire aesthetic is a sin against God. Um, and a, uh, such a foolish take. No, I mean, and it's borne out time and time again. I think I can think of no more extreme example than uh, the upcoming Studio Ghibli film with their first foray into 3D animation, which truly, I mean, I'm paraphrasing Hayao Miyazaki uh, watching CGI, you know, AI-developed animation, saying it's a, a sin against God or whatever he I was mean, saying. I mean, the um, animation but, in that film is not up to the uh, No, it is not. But I, 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 I do feel the word I always have used to describe this kind of animation is, ironically, soulless. Um, and even at its best in this movie, and there, there are moments that I can't imagine being done better in any style. Um, but for the most part, it's maybe it just comes down to personal bias, but I just don't see even in the no. most expressive moments here, the same degree of, um, of life in any of these characters as I do in something like Wolfwalkers. Uh, and I think I agree with everything Dave says. This is as, as good as it's gotten, if not necessarily as good as it gets. Uh, and it's time to take the entire last 20 years of animation outside and shoot it in the face. Um, okay. Let's <laughs> take a deep breath. Patches, will you um, talk about the score? I know you want to talk about other stuff, but you should talk about the score. Well, yeah, Patches, I, I, talk about the score. I will I will talk about the score in a second because I want to respond to, to David to both say you're totally just off base criticizing all of 3D animation there are definitely beautiful films that pixar has made there are beautiful sequences and shots and the whole movies i mean, um, like, I, mean I think I hey think hey, hey if you go hey. back to any of them they already feel so ancient i don't agree like going back to like wally and ratatouille and up i think those movies hold up and they are beautiful um but if you let me finish i was gonna say Never. this i feel the same way about soul um that i think soul I have, I, have, I have such strange feelings about this movie. I don't think it's beautiful. Um, I don't really, I, I don't find much enjoyment in the realism of New York being rendered in, you know, down to every detail, every square block looking like it does in real life with cartoon characters walking around it. I, I don't find much enjoyment in that or the cartooning of... Um, joe and or or 22 as joe and joe as a cat uh running around new york yeah that's i didn't find that that enjoyable um i mean the real glimmer of of beauty in the beginning of this is the beginning of this movie when um joe is is going up the staircase we're seeing the cosmos where he's falling through from the great beyond to the great before and the styles are changing and everything is becoming 
radical. I, I I do believe that Pixar, especially from watching their Spark Shorts series that's on Disney Plus and their shorts over the years, have the technology to do truly amazing things with 3D animation. And we get a, a glimpse of that in this movie, and then we don't see it really again. Like I I believe Wait, that they should be doing Fantasia. You want a full movie of that? Like you? Yes, I do. I because... want a Fantasia. Okay. I want I want like experiments. Katie, Patches has been champing at the bit for from... more dark universe for like four years That's now. Right. Do not question <laughs> what he does or wants. does not want. I think what's so astonishing about that is because of the context it's in. It's in the context of this more traditionally animated, really commercial Pixar movie, and that's what makes it feel really bold when it comes up. I guess I just, um, well, if we talk about something like Wolfwalkers, um, that picks a style, picks a lane, and tells a story that feels really tethered to that style, and it's enhanced by that style. I don't think a movie needs to be totally experimental in every new sequence that comes up. I just don't, I didn't feel the connection that Dave is describing. I didn't feel that emotional connection to the characters because the animation was kind of standing in its way or not leaning into it enough. I didn't, I didn't feel, here's how I wanted to feel watching Soar or I I was waiting for the moment when I would have this revelation. I read a book ages ago and I think I recommend it on this podcast. So if, if you're that person who listened to 10 years of this podcast, maybe you recently heard me recommend it. It's called some 40 Tales from the Afterlives. It was written by this guy, David Eagleman. I think he was like a physicist, and now he has a Netflix show. Um, and it was basically short <laughs> The career story. arc of the future. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> of every person. Content creator, something, something. Um, Eagleman wrote this book that was just like imagining versions of the afterlife in short stories and like what scientists think, what philosophers think. Um, picturing the afterlife. And I just thought Soul had this opportunity to really kind of grapple with ideas of the afterlife and ideas of how we think about ourselves on this planet and ourselves in the cosmos and like big ideas big thoughts like here we're going to try and give you an answer and a version of that but also tell you that there are no answers like there's such big ideas on the table for soul and i never got walloped by it in a way that i would where's your god movie pixar (laughs) where is your god i mean this is your god movie but this movie one takeaway i did have from this movie is like being an atheist so boring or like being agnostic i'm like what's the point of of not believing in anything anymore i just gotta pick a lane like it's so much more interesting to be curious about what's to come and and put it out there and they they did they like they created an afterlife that's interesting well they created before like the afterlife is very unclear you don't know what happens in the great beyond like it's so much more about the individual experience on earth like the message of the movie is not about what happens after we die it's about how you live the life that you have and that's the and then this is where the music comes in and where the music is both great, like I love the Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, Cosmos score, and then I like what John Batiste is bringing to it from the jazz stuff, but the music never feels like it's defining anyone, or it's never feeling spiritual. Like, we see sequences, and this is where maybe the animation fails it a, a little bit. Like, we see moments where Joe is, he enters the zone, and he's playing these music these these pieces that mean so much to him he's losing himself to the to the keyboard and and i i didn't follow him there they don't feel transcendent in a way that they need to for it to be like a defining feature of his life where he feels like he's debating if he's on the planet to play jazz it needs to feel pretty big and i don't necessarily mean that the, the scope of the movie suddenly has to kind of blow up i just i wasn't being swept away by the animation in that way it's a very plot driven movie for something that should feel abstract and about and about internal feelings, I 
I don't know. It was. I feel like you guys are asking this movie to be something it was never going to be. Patches spoiled by the point. Like I was spoiled by the point. You know, I mean, you, <laughs> like I, I grant that Pixar is never going to have the most inventive animation style on the planet, and there are lots of other places who are doing it in really creative ways. And like with Wolfwalkers, it's like a commercial film to some extent, the same way that Soul. I'm is, not pitting like, Soul against Wolfwalkers like David is over here. I'm not drawing a line and telling you to shoot Pixar in the head. Like it's always going to be plotty. It's always Only, going I wanna, to be. I want to be clear metaphorically. I uh, yes, yes. <laughs> not issuing death threats. Um, I yeah, don't know. No, it is, I just, it I is like... going to be plotty. It is going to be what it is. I'm just saying sometimes I like Inside Out, for instance. And, and now I'm wondering why I liked Inside Out so much more. I felt like Bing Bong disappearing really knocked me out. Whereas uh, I don't know what the comparative. <laughs> the I don't think Soul has a moment quite like that. It kind of like hits its like Coco song moment near the very, very end. And it doesn't hit on the same level. And you know like... what scene doesn't work as well as I wanted it to? And maybe it's the crux of the movie for me. I, I think that lesson that Joe could be a great teacher as well as a, a, a jazz obsessive and always want to play jazz. I think it's a really important thing for him to discover. And I don't feel like that moment where they inspire that girl to go play the trombone really mm. lands. Like, it's not the whole movie. Because be the, the cat. Movie. Because of the cat. No, you're right. You're right. Well, the cat this, doesn't participate in that This moment. device interferes. It, no, not... but you have to keep cutting back and forth. To the why is no, but it's not his moment to learn to be a teacher. It's 22's moment to learn what makes right, people Right, so function. why is the movie about 22 and not Joe? I don't think it, the movie is about him being a teacher. I think it's it leaves it very unclear about what he's going to go on to do for a reason. It's that it's opening up his possibilities without settling on anything. Right, right. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm muddled by I what think... Soul is chasing here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's if, if there's a thing that hampers it, it's that it is plotty and that it kind of feels like it has to go back for a caper, like at a moment when you don't necessarily think it needs to. But again, like, I think that is a format within Pixar is going to work. Like, they are going to be able to reinvent the wheel only so much within the very strict format they have because they are a Disney company that has to make a billion dollars every time they release a movie. Um, but I think within those bounds, within those really commercial bounds, they've done a lot here. I don't think this is going to out Coco. Coco at the top of my Pixar list. Coco's pretty beautiful. Oh, Coco's beautiful amazing. But I am really, uh, I guess, in, in a world where we've seen the Disney Plus presentation and we know what's fucking coming and we know that we're sort of at the, the sun setting for the Pixar Brain Trust and uh, hopefully a new group of diverse people coming in is what they're saying uh, this movie helps me see the stepping stone for the company between that, where it's been really hard up until this point mm. to be like, are you going to be able to be respectful of cultures and have people's voices? Or are you going to, you know, have weird animation things? You're like, we didn't think about this in terms of this culture. I'm very happy to see that. I don't know. The, the Disney machine hasn't ground all recognizable life out of it yet. <laughs> I took a photo at some point, and I'm not going to be able to find it on my phone in time, but the at the very end of the credits, they say all of the people who they consulted on making the movie, and it, it named, like, four different black barbershops, like the NAACP, mm. like... All these different names of people, like Kenya Barris, I think was at least one of them. Um, they, they, the, the amount of consulting they did with black people and black cultural institutions on this is massive. And they had a black screenwriter as well. Um, so I don't... I thought, he, I thought Kemp Powers was a co-director. 
Oh, is he a co-director? I know he at least wrote the I screenplay. So. All right, I've actually found the yeah Village Vanguard, Nathaniel Hawthorne Middle School, National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, I mean, one of the scenes I loved in this movie was when they went to the barber shop. I wish this movie had a could take a deep breath. I know that it ultimately has to be a whirlwind and it's appealing to four quadrants so kids need something and we so we need that caper aspect but like when they take a deep breath and go to the barbershop or go to the mom's ta- uh what, what does she run it's uh, taylor like taylor taylor like that that stuff is the most beautiful part of the movie to me just like people you just said you didn't people. like the new york stuff no, I don't like running around New York. I don't like what you're talking about, which is like, wow, New York, beautifully rendered in a bazillion pixels. Like, who Love cares it. about how that Yeah, works, honestly, right? who cares? I mean, like, go play the fucking Spider-Man game if that's what you want. Wow. I don't like that you can so much better than the Spider-Man game in terms of rendering New York. <laughs> I like what Dave is talking about where you can you can have character models of, of lots of different types of people hanging out in a well, barbershop. You can about. get angles uh, that you would never get from uh, a camera and real people. But that's like, what I'm talking about is cool. the people in the subway is what makes me think like, wow, New York, like it's not just scenery. It's about the texture of being on the street. Like the 22 noticing like a kid being like flung on his arms by like another, by a parent walking down the street. And that's what the appeal of the city is. It's not like, I can't believe how realistic it is. It's how like how felt it is. Yeah, Toy Story 4 was the, oh, look, they're able to replicate lenses now. And I'm Ooh, like, the rain. I'm, it's so rainy. And it, like everything I had to say about Toy Story 4 was probably something that only I was like, oh, my God, Toy Story 4 it's, it does the lenses so well. But like, I'm glad to see that that's moving to stuff that we like the average person can see. It's obviously not the highlight yet, but hopefully that's what it'll be for some of these upcoming projects. And it's say- like... It's less boring an experiment than the good dinosaur. So if you're going to be experimenting how your technology is... That's an experiment with trying to finish a movie that you have no idea how to to do it, but it (laughs) has to come out for business reasons. Um. Well, and also just like, you know, we want to do some like cartoony stuff here and some realistic things here. Let's figure it out. Uh, Like I I would much rather have uh, shots like shit. I've watched this movie twice and it's totally chill and I would turn it on again in a second. The Good Dinosaur? I like having it. No, Soul. (laughs) Um, I, I like, again, I like the soundtrack. I like the vibes. I like the visuals. I just wish it pushed harder into territory that I felt moved by. I feel like it was close. I felt like it was really onto something with the the grandeur of before and after and then the intimacy of reality and, and earthbound experience. I just, I didn't find the drama in that. It was just scenes that happened. There's this Sundance movie called Nine Days that was at Sundance. I don't know if either of you guys saw it there. And then so I, I like... mean, Katie, that, this is a big trigger for me. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. anyway, grace I, for David here. All I was going to say is that it spends an entire movie basically hammering home the message that Soul gets to in about thirty seconds, which is just like, here is the life that you have, live it. Uh, and it, I watched them close together, and it made me very much appreciate Soul for for getting to the point. That's I, all. I can, I can, I want to co-sign all of that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I got I, David I, to like something about soul. <laughs> I, I mean, I there's was, a lot I, to like about soul. It's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of barriers that I had that I couldn't really get over. Well, now we know that if we ever talk about another 3D animated movie, we could start with David being like, Although I think this is all worth it. I mean, this has been the party line for, for me for about a decade now, at the very least. I don't think this is anything that now we know 
Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I remember posting a tweet like a zillion years ago of a still from Frozen, the still from The Wind Rises, and just uh, you know the horror that we sacrificed one form of animation at the altar of another much uglier one. Uh, it's one of those things that I will never get over. But you know, there is the occasional Into the Spider Verse that that somehow threads the needle, but. Man, I can't, yeah, I can't wait for rarely. us to be uh, old enough to watch Into the Spider-Verse in this house, speaking of how there's not enough Spider-Man stuff for preschool kids, because that one would be fun. We're not ready yet. Yeah, there's a big there's a big goblin in that and everything. It starts off very intense, and I think we're just not there. Although I will say, I've, I've seen some people being like, I like Soul, but I don't know if kids will. And uh, stop underestimating your kids. You never know. And there's a talking cat. Yeah, there's a talking cat. A talking cat? Oh. Uh, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Happy New Year. In the meantime, tell people who you are. I am Matt Patches, Senior Editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we still have a website in 2021. Fightingintheworroom.com. All the episodes are there to listen if you need 10 years of shows? No, maybe not all of them are there. But uh, some of them are there! Uh, I am David Ehrlich. I feel like I was extraordinary this week, but... Uh, Starting the year on the right you, foot. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I feel like I am. I just uh, seeing all these... This is the day before the Georgia runoffs, and... Uh, it's our first day back at work, and my you're not son, living your life at a 0.05 blood alcohol level. I I am not. Oh, right, like another round? No, <laughs> yeah. I should be. Like that would be that would be. I would feel like it was a much better much better headspace. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, these movies didn't sit well with me. But there are really good movies out there, and I can't wait to talk to you all about them next week on our top ten episode. Um, in the meantime, you can find all of us on Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Leave us a review. Read at the top of the show, live on air. What better honor is there? Uh, and you can also email us. I got an email from a longtime listener named Kevin Brockmeyer today who was asking a really interesting question that I'll pose to the three of you off mic and maybe it would be a great subject for a future episode. Uh, anyway, thanks. Go on iTunes. Uh, my name's Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. I also do another podcast called The Storm. A Lost Rewatch podcast. We are at the beginning of season five, which means time travel. Woo! I'm psyched. Come join us over there. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com and on the Little Goldman podcast. For this week, I did an interview with Amanda Seyfried, who was great. Uh, and it's fun interviewing oh, other Oh, nerds. <laughs> uh, you can listen to it for some mom talk. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where, I don't know, you can hassle patches about the Dark Universe and the other things that he's said that he actually wants, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Pieces of a Woman, what's the most harrowing thing you've ever seen on screen? Oh, what you should actually do is tell us if it's pronounced harrowing or harrowing, and which one of us... Harrowing. Is harrowing. It's harrowing. harrowing. And also, Harrowing. Oh. Harrowing. And Katie, uh, uh, one harrowing question I want to ask before we wrap up this episode is which cast member of the newsroom did you have a baby with? Oh, wait. Who's in the newsroom? Who had a baby with someone in the Amanda newsroom? Seyfried's, uh, oh, Amanda Seyfried's right. mom. Uh, I didn't watch the newsroom, so I can only think of Olivia Munn. Is that a good Great. answer? Uh, a beautiful child, that would be. Great. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.
tell you when I'm done. Find a way to find my fair lady. I'm done.